Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to talk about uh, uh, Noah, uh, a.k.a. Noah, and, and the flood. Uh, more specifically, I, I want to discuss the ark and, um, and the miraculous nature of it, and also uh, its connection to, uh, to the Mishkan, and also what, what this means in terms of improving ourselves and also um, bringing the redemption. So these are, these are the, kind of the broad subjects I want to connect, but, but you'll see they're all very much connected. So I was, I was very much struck this year in reading um, about the, the Ark, also known as the Teva. Maybe we'll use the, um, the Hebrew word. Teva is, 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 is great because it, it doesn't just mean Ark. Ark gets us to the, to the concept of a boat, which is fine, but um, teva is, is very resonant because in Hebrew it also means word. And on a Hasidic level, um, the Baal Shem Tov, uh, I heard this in his name, that, that Hashem was talking about really, in order to save yourself, not just entering into the ark, that, that works on that level, um, but entering into the, word, the words of Torah themselves. So you can actually enter into the words. And I think... Um, Hopefully all of us have experienced the difference between superficially studying the Torah and actually entering into the words of the Torah. Um, We all know that on a mystical level it says that Hashem looked into the Torah and He created the world. So, So really the fabric of reality is made out of the letters of the Torah themselves. So entering into the words, you're really, if you want to have a, a deeper understanding of what it means to be being present or being here now, if you will, that's very much uh, in keeping with this idea of entering into the Teva, entering into the Word. You're entering into the moment of reality at that moment. So that's, there's salvation in that. Um, the, the headquarters of the moment, in quotes, where, where, what is the capital of the moment? The capital of the moment is Shabbos. And interestingly, Noach, Nach, also means rest. And Noach's neshama is connected with, with rest and with Shabbos, our sources say. So, so all of this is, is, is very relevant. And, um, you know, in the Shabbos itself, the Ishvitzer Rebbe brings down, you're given the eyes to see that which you've always had. Which is very deep, because during the week, we're in a state of acquiring. We're trying to grab and grab and grab, and make and make and make. And there's something to that. God wants us to build the world. Very much so. We're instructed to do that. So all that's good. But if, if life is just a series of blind acquisitions then um, we're lacking the soul of acquisition itself, which means we're acquiring without being aware that we're acquiring. Um, I know in my own life I'll have a series of amazing experiences and then won't really allow myself to dwell on them or think about them. And even though I've had adventures, and I'm sure this is true for all of us, it's, there's something hollow to it because you haven't actually lived these moments. You've just sort of like gone through these adventures. And so, 
on Shabbos itself, God affords us the spiritual power to actually live in the moment, to absorb, absorb experience itself. To see what that is that we've had all along, which is this life in this world. And Shabbos, of course, is the ultimate ark. It's the ultimate teva. It's the ultimate um, uh, construct which allows us to survive in this world. So now, let's keep on going. I was struck this year very much by the fact that, that you have this thing that we have to build with very, very specific measurements. And the word for measurements in Hebrew is midos. And we're going to go more deeply into that in a moment. Um, and I thought to myself, well, where else do you see this idea of constructing something with very, very specific measurements in the, in the Chumash itself, in the Torah? And it hit me that, wow, you know where else? It's the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert. A large chunk of the Torah is devoted to all of the specific measurements and the building that has to take place in terms of the Mishkan. I thought, well, isn't that interesting? The Ark and the Mishkan are very, very similar. And I thought, well, how are they similar exactly? So I asked, uh, I put this question to my, my son over our early morning Shabbos gathering, which I've dubbed the um, Shabbos Donut Society, since we have donuts and often learn a little Torah. So, um, so my son said, well, they both move. I thought that was interesting. I, I wouldn't have made that connection. Like, the ark moves, and the tabernacle, you break that down, and that moves. So, that's worth more thought. But, moving on, uh, my niece had a good comment. She said, both of them were divided into three sections. I thought that was interesting, too. You know, there were three floors to the ark. On the bottom was where they had the refuse. Um, in the middle, they had the animals. And on the top, they had the people. And the, the way the, um, the uh, Mishkan was divided, you had the, the courtyard, you had the holies, and then you had the holy of holies. So, um, so that, that's, that's interesting, too. My answer was that they were both places of salvation. The Ark was a place where all of humanity was saved. And the Mishkan is a place where one can go to rectify your mistakes. You bring offerings and you're able to repair and you're able to receive salvation there. So both of them are places of salvation. Both of them we have to construct, but we construct them through divine instructions. And the measurements are very, very specific. You know, someone, I was giving a talk uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking about the Torah way to put on your shoes and socks, which, in case you don't know, you put your right sock on, and then your left sh- sock, your right shoe, and then your left shoe, then the order switches, then you tie your left shoe, then you tie your right shoe, or Velcro it, or whatever it is. So, right sock, left sock, right shoe, left shoe, then you tie your left shoe, then you tie your right shoe. I can go on and on about this because I love this, you know, for many, many different reasons. And in the period in my life where I really was impressed with the truth and the beauty and the infinity of the Torah, but before I was in a place in my life where I was really keeping it, I was putting my shoes on every day in this way, and it really kept me connected to the Torah until I reached a place in my life where I could do 
do it on a more um, uh, intensive level. So I'm, I'm very grateful to this to this to this set of instructions. So someone heard this or heard a related idea and kind of got angry and challenged me and said, you know, you know, who said there's only one way to do something? And first of all, you should know that anyone who's serious about learning Torah and learning Halacha and learning the, the post scheme know that within the the Torah way, there are many, many, many different opinions. Many, many different opinions. The Talmud, which is giant, if you read or learn one page of the Talmud a day, it takes you seven years to get through the entire thing. It was compiled, edited, over a 500-year period. Is there another thing in human society, in human civilization, any book that comes close to something that took 500 years to edit. And then, of course, it existed, you know, well over a thousand years before that. So, the Talmud is varieties of opinions on everything. You know, it's a great slander. For me, I'm, I'm, I'm almost physically uncomfortable with this idea of this word orthodox. Orthodox Judaism. Orthodox is a very, for me, personally, it's, it's unfortunately descriptive and it's entered into our vernacular and it is what it is. But there is, to my ears anyway, there's a, 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 a negative connotation which means um, limited or um, narrow-minded or literalist. There's nothing literalist about someone who's a Torah Jew. When it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we don't take an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. We've never taken an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. And if you look at the explanation that we've lived by, which is spelled out in the Talmud of that passage since the beginning, it means workman's compensation. If someone's a ditch digger and they're injured in a particular way that they can't do their craft, then they're compensated according to their income. If someone's a brain surgeon who would supposedly earn a little bit more money, and they're injured, then they get a little bit more compensation, according to one's craft. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's the understanding that we've always practiced. Now, all of a sudden, you've got a complete 180 reversal. Sometimes people like to say a 360 reversal, but that brings you back to the same point. So that's actually a... a uh. Anyway, um, so... So it's gone from the most primitive, literalist, fundamentalist notion, oh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, what barbarians, to something which was thousands of years ahead of the rest of human civilization, which is workman's compensation, and doing it according to one's level in the most just way. So you see how words can really be misused, um, you know, I don't think there is a, 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 a great term. Torah observant, Torah Jew, I like. That's, that's not bad. Um, but anyway, um, getting back to this notion of Noah and rest and the Mishkan and the exact measurements and all the rest. Um, so, just to finish that last thought, I'm sorry. The, this person says, well, who says there's just one way to do things? Well, there are many, many ways to do things. All within Torah. All within quote-unquote orthodoxy. But we settle, as the generations have 
developed and everything like that, we all want to basically be practicing the same thing. So different communities have different standards, but within the communities, the Spartan have pretty much settled on this one route in terms of the observance of this mitzvah, the Ashkenazim on this. You know, different parts of the world have settled on something, but there's something nice about everyone doing something in the same way together. Right? But you shouldn't think that it's, well, that's how it's done in period end. You know, because that's, that, that's not really um, intellectually honest or, 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 or accurate. Okay. So, so, so I want to get back to this notion of comparing the Ark and the Mishkan. Both places of salvation. Both places that we have to construct, but we construct them according to divine direction. That's so much of the world, that's so much of our life, captured into this, captured into this idea. Now, I was really happy because... At the end of every Parsha, and um, if you've got the Art Scroll um, uh, edition of the Torah, of the five books, they'll bring it down in one of the footnotes at the end of every Parsha. Um, We have um, an old tradition. Uh, Let's see if I can actually read this word in English. Masoretic note. A Masoretic note. That means from the Masorah. That means the Masorah is that which has been handed down, as the Torah has been handed down from generation to generation. So, um, so one of the things that's been handed down is how many verses are in each parsha, each portion of the week. Because remember, when the Torah was given, it was given in one long, continuous, one long, continuous note. And then the rabbis you know, showed us where the end of each verse is, and where the end of each Parsha is, and everything like this, okay? The chapters, by the way, are from Christian sources. Okay? The chapters, but the Parshas and the verses are from the rabbis. So, that's um, just something to keep in the back of your mind. Anyway, so how many, again, what, we're, what I was sort of contemplating, and I'm going to get much more into it, since this is really the topic for today, is the comparison between the Ark and the Mishkan the uh, tabernacle in the desert, which was the prototype to the base of Migdash, the holy temple in Jerusalem. So, so I noticed this note, which says that in this, in Parshas Noach, which is talking about the ark, and the flood and everything, that there are 153 verses. That's what it says. And then it goes on to give you a mnemonic, which is a way to remember, how can you remember that number? So they'll give you, they give you a gematria, a word, which that correlates with. So 153, it brings down, is, correlates with the name Betzalel. Now, Betzalel is the one who constructed the Mishkan. So that's intense. That's really intense, because it shows you that the rabbis were aware of this connection for probably thousands of years between, between the Ark and the Mishkan. And that this whole portion about the Ark is at the same time on a deep, deep level is talking about the Mishkan. Okay, so I want to get back to this idea of, of, of midos, of measurements. You know, everyone knows that 
Judaism is always emphasizing good mitos. And, and, and it just comes to mean good character traits. But the interesting thing is that mitos actually means measurements. So that means in Torah, the Torah understanding, if you want to just kind of zero in on it, what does it mean to have a good character? It means to have a measured, a properly measured response to the situation at hand. Right? So if someone annoys you, you don't start screaming. That's not a properly measured response to the incident. If someone hurts your feelings, you don't stop talking to them forever. That's not a properly measured response to the circumstances. If someone tells you a joke, you don't laugh like an insane person and roll around on the floor. It's not a properly measured response. Now, I'm not talking about, therefore, we must be robots. (laughs) Abolish all traces of personality. That's not what I'm saying. But nonetheless, there is a concept of proportion. There's a concept of proportion, which is very beautiful. You know, if you look at the great artists, imagine yourself just, you know, in your mind right now, walking down, you know, the, the, the gallery of a, of a museum. All great art, even abstract art, even art that's non-representational, right, has this sense of proportion which is incredibly pleasing because there's something right about it. Listen to this. You want to hear something really cool? If you don't know it already, um, our declaration, you know, if you have to boil the Torah down to one passage, um, well, there's a debate as to what that would be, but one candidate certainly is Shema Yisrael. Right? Shema Yisrael, Shema Lokino, Shema Chad. Right? Now, now that's, that's, that's talking about the oneness of God. That's the ultimate proportion. It's all one. Right? And God's oneness transcends this world also. Very important distinction. We say, make a big point about how God fills the world. How everything you do, you're interacting with God. How there's no such thing as a secular moment. There's no such thing as a secular moment. Right? You're constantly interacting with God. But God does more than just fill the world. He also transcends this world. If you say that God equals the world because God fills the world, that's not Judaism any longer. Okay? Very, very important. That becomes another theology. God fills the world, but he transcends the world as well. Okay. So, so the Shema is hitting at this, at this blueprint of, of the world. Okay? Now, in Japanese culture, you have a poetic form called haiku. And classic haiku is five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. And it describes, like, really good haiku, H-A-I-K-U, okay? Really good haiku kind of usually captures a moment. And there's something about the rhythm of, a, of haiku that really made it part of sort of classical Japanese literature, okay? So, now listen to this. I saw this on the internet. I wish I could credit the source. I don't know who uh, noticed this. Shema Yisrael is, a hai- is in the rhythm of haiku. Or, let me put it this way, more, more, more to the point, haiku perhaps derives its power 
from the fact that it's tapping into the rhythm of Shema Yisrael, which is a description of the universe. So I'll show you. I'll, I'll use... I use I won't use Hashem's name right now, but but it fits if you use Hashem's name. Remember, it's five seven five. You can count on your fingers. Shema Yisrael. That's five. Hashem. That that works because if you use Hashem's name, that still works. Ha, it's two syllables. Now this is the seven line. We'll start again. Hashem Elokate. Hash. No, uh, oh, it doesn't work. It's three syllables actually. Okay. So so I'll say Hashem's name. Adonai Eloheinu. Okay, that's seven syllables. Right? Adonai Echad. Okay, so five, seven, five. So, so, you know, again, again, it's the beauty of proper measurements, the beauty of good midos, is the ability to tap into this rhythm of the universe, to be in harmony with the universe. This is what halacha is. Halacha is translated, say, remember, translations are really, really dangerous because when you translate a word, what you're doing is often you're, you're, you're adding on a whole set of implications and cultural overlays onto the concept which is often going to be tantamount to putting an alien theology into the Torah. So that's really problematic. Translations, are, you have to be so careful with translations. People will be turned off all the time. Mitzvot. My Rebbe, Reb Shlomo Karlach, says mitzvot are divine pathways. Divine pathways, ways of connecting with Hashem. Right? What does the world translate mitzvot as? Commandments. Do you see a tyrant with a whip? <laughs> Wait a second. Where did that come from? That came from the English. Halacha. Halacha means the way or the flow. You know, people are so into like Zen and Eastern stuff. What's more, what's more, what's more that than the way? The way. I mean, right? Is that, does that sound like, are we like in Asia right now? You know? <laughs> You know, we're all grass bending in the wind right now. Halacha means the way. And it's translated as Jewish law. I mean, I just got hit over the head with a stick. So, believe it or not, we fast one day every year because the Torah was translated. The Tenth of Tevez. Look it up. Look it up. There's several reasons why we fast on the day. If you ask the normal person on the street who knows a little something, they'll tell you, oh, I know why I'm fasting on the 10th, because that's when the Romans surrounded the base of Migdash. And you know what? That's 100% accurate. But look at the other reasons why we also fast on that day. And one of the reasons is because the Torah was translated for the first time into Greek, the Septuagint. Right? That only took me 30 years to learn how to pronounce. Okay? So, that's... That's a problem. It says it's like a lion was put into a cage. It's a problem. Because now all sorts of disconnects are going to take place. Disconnects on top of disconnects on top of disconnects because we're not talking the same language anymore. So yeah. The tenth of Teves. It's coming up. It's coming up. Um, you can see it in the in the in the art scroll, in the in uh, the, the back of the art scroll sitter. Under Slichos, 
you'll, you'll see the, um, they'll tell you all the things that happened on that day. It all listed. It was translated into Greek, yeah. Um, so, um, okay. So, so moving on. So it's really important to have good, good meetups. Now, how important is it to have good meetups? Extremely important. Reb Chaim Vital, who was the great student of the Ari HaKodesh, um, said the following, that a bad character trait is worse than an Avera, is worse than violating the Torah. Because if one violates the Torah, that's a singular action, and they can repair it. You bring a korban, or you do tshuva, or whatever it is, you can fix it. All of our mistakes we can fix. You fix the mistake. You made a mistake, you fix it. Fine. But a bad nida, a bad character trait, is a fountain of averos. Because from that bad character trait will come just a fountain of mistakes. So, fixing our character, right, putting our character in proportion... Right? And what is the set of instructions? What is our blueprint? It's the halacha. That's, that's, that's our primary work. Okay. So now listen to this. I heard this and, you know, as soon as I heard it, I said, it just went right into my heart. I was like, that's right. That's exactly right. So, so something that a person can say, should say, every single day, is that they're dedicating themselves. And, and when I was told this, it was, I, I, I'm, I'm afraid I can't give you all the sources, but it was said really in the name of all the great Rebbes, and that saying this one thing was worse, was worth rather, was worth more than many fasts. Can you imagine just being able to say one thing which is worth many fasts? So that's, that's a powerful thing. What is it? It's that I am dedicating myself into making myself into a mikdash, into a merkava. Right? So that means the mikdash, that's a mishkan, that's, in other words, a, a structure, a dwelling place for God. And a merkava is, is like a chariot. Right? It says that the avos, our, our holy fathers, um, were like, a merkava. That means it's like a like a chariot for for God in this world. Meaning to say that we're we're directing we're directing godliness into into the whole world. You know. See, it's really it's really interesting. There's this amazing duality which is in the world, which is that on the one hand, God absolutely fills all of existence and transcends existence as well, and yet. God looks to us to reveal His omnipresence. So you say, if God is already everywhere, then what work do I have to do? So our work is to reveal that which is there. See, I heard Rabbi Manus Friedman say it so beautifully. He said, you know, we have this idea uh, of yesh miyayim, which means that God made something out of nothing. Meaning, it's talking about the creation of the world. God made something out of nothing. Meaning to say, there was no world there, 
and then God made the world. And we're told that this is the only time that God has ever done this, and that man is incapable of doing this. We take something and we make something new out of it. But we don't take nothing, nothingness itself, and make something. That can't be done. That was only done, and that was done by God. And since then, we say, there's nothing new under the sun. Okay? That's, that's from Kahelis. That's from King Solomon, Shlomo Melech. Meaning to say that, that when God wants to bring about something now, He takes what has already been created and then brings it into the world. Sometimes He'll bring it into a new form. I'll tell you something deep. Hopefully I'll be able to say this over on the spot. We've got four essential components, materials, if you will, of reality. There's fire, water, air, and earth. Okay? Those correlate, this is what I'm telling you right now, is from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaver, who was a student of the Vilna Gons, about a generation or so after him, and really kind of brought down a lot of the Kabbalistic tradition from the school of the Vilna Gon. So he says the following, there's fire, water, air, and earth. And these correlate with the four letters of Hashem's name. And that earth is really a combination of fire, water, and air. And that correlates earth with the bottom letter He of Hashem's name, Yudke Vavke. Okay? So, so we have three primary ingredients. And just like the letter He in Hashem's name is repeated, the second letter He in Hashem's name is a combination of the first three letters. So earth is a combination of fire, water, and air. Hopefully that was clear. But here's the point. The point is that when Hashem brings about the new reality, the Mashiachtic reality, the Zman Atikun, the rectified world in which the laws of nature are going to be different, they're going to be changed, there's going to be perfection in the world. There are going to be no obstacles to serving God at all. Well, you would say to me, that's a new reality. Doesn't it say that there's nothing new under the sun? So how is God going to bring about this new world if we just said that God doesn't make anything new? So Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver, right? this is a, a, a look into the secret recipe book of creation. You ready? He says he's going to combine fire, water, and air. The first three letters of his name, the Yud, the He, and the Vav, in a new way. And that's going to bring about a new fabric of creation and a new reality in which perfection is manifest. Very amazing. So these are, this is how Hashem is going to go about making the new world and yet not make something brand new. Right? Because that happens once. But let's go back to the teaching of Rabbi Manus Friedman. Listen to this. So, so, we say God made something out of nothing. There was nothing before the world existed, and then God made something. God made the world, right? But he said, no, 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 that's not what it is. God made nothing out of something. <laughs> there was something before the world was created. There was God! 
And he made this world, which is like nothing compared to him. So God actually made nothing out of something. That's a whole different perspective. Okay? Now, with this in mind, let's, let's visit what I think most people think, and we'll show something much deeper within it. Most people think, you know what? When I do a mitzvah, I'm making the world more holy. Right? It would be hard to argue against that, right? I, I said a blessing. I took this pear, which is just a pear. It's just nothing. It's basically a fancy form of earth. I took this pear. I said the brocha. I made it holy. It wasn't holy before I made it holy. Okay? There's something to it. There's something to that, right? But you want to hear something much deeper? Wait a second. God fills the entire world. God fills the entire world. Everything has the holiness of God in it, right? So what did I do? It's not that I made it holy. It's already holy, because God fills the entire world. What I did when I made the blessing, and I said that this comes from God, and thanking God for this thing, I revealed the holiness that's there. I revealed the holiness that's there. So this is now getting back to what I was saying. The entire world is filled with godliness. And yet, so you say, what's my job? What's my job? So our job is to reveal the holiness that's there. How do I do that? By making myself into a mishkan. By correlating my own life and my own actions with the proper measurements, with the proper mitos. I put myself in harmony with the universe and I reveal the godliness that's in this world. Now, at the end of Parsha's Noach, you have something um, very, very cool, which is the appearance of Abraham Avinu and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah. Although they're still under their original names, Avram and Sarai. Okay? But nonetheless, it's Abraham and Sarah. So... Sarah, it says, has a different name. She has another name. And that name is Yiska. Now, Yiska is a very interesting word. It means um, to gaze, basically. So it has different levels of understanding what that means to gaze. One is that she had prophecy. And at least in one place, it says that her prophecy was even greater than Abraham's because when um, Shem instructed Abraham that he should, you know, expel Hagar and primarily Yishmael out of his home, he really told, Hashem told Abraham directly, listen to your wife. Cause, and it's brought down that she had a higher understanding of this, that her prophecy was higher. Okay. So, on one level, on one level, Yiska, meaning to gaze, means prophetically that she had this ability. But she was also incredibly beautiful. Sarah was incredibly beautiful. And people would look at her a lot. So that is another level of what it means to gaze. People liked to look at her. Okay? Although, amazingly, it says that Abraham didn't even know she was beautiful until very late in life. And that didn't come from a lack of appreciation of her. It's just he's, he, wasn't, um, he wasn't staring basically, you know? So, anyway. So this name, Yiska, to gaze, 
So I heard Rabbi Tatz say something. He put it all together in a really amazing way. And he said that the word Yizka has the same root as the word Tzach. Tzach is that part of the sukkah that has the branches on top of it. And you know, one of the, one of the halachas of Tzach is that you should be able to see through it, to see the stars through it. Okay? So now, from this, he, he gives us a definition of Jewish beauty. What is, the, what is our concept of beauty in Torah? Okay? So beauty, see, just like schach, you have to be able to see through and you have to be able to see the stars in the heavens, right? Sarah was beautiful in the way that people could see through. When they looked at her, they saw through and they saw the beauty of Hashem. So, so, so it's really, it's a very empowering thought, I think, that, that beauty isn't contingent on a particular form. But beauty is, if someone has the proper measurements, the proper mitos, the proper reaction to circumstances around them, what happens is Hashem's beauty shines through them. And Hashem is revealed in the world. So this is, this is our job. This is our job to, to learn how to make a divine construct out of our personalities, out of our lives, and then the entire, the entire world becomes ordered. The entire world becomes ordered. There's an amazing thing, and maybe we'll close with this. Um, it talks about in Parshas Noach that, that at a certain year, all the heavens opened up and the rains came down. The waters came up as well. Right? It was shooting from both directions, from above to below and from below to above, flooding the whole world. Um, wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. Can't believe it. Okay. Listen to this. If you look at if you if you look at the uh, look at the Rashi, um, you'll see he gives key dates of the um, of the development of the flood. He'll tell you when the waters reached their highest point and when the ark hit the top of Mount Ararat as, as the waters were descending and when the waters actually left the world. He gives you a whole chronology with some very key interesting dates. You want to hear an amazing date? Listen to this. Wow, I can't believe it didn't just hit me right now. Listen to this. The water of the flood, remember, what have we, what have we been talking about? The connection between the ark and the Mishkan, Right? The waters, when did the waters leave the world? The date that the waters finally left the world? The first day of Nisan. What happened on the first day of Nisan? That's when the, that's when the Mishkan was dedicated. Right? So there you have, bless you. There you have, boy, you can't get, bless you, you can't, you can't get a more precise correlation than that. Right? Maybe that's what the Chachamim had in mind when they said, that Betzalel, right? Right? Because that's the same day that the waters left the world, meaning when the rectification, when the rectification happened, the waters leaving the world, that's when the Mishkan was built. And you know, according to many commentators, 
or maybe the majority of commentators, the Mishkan itself was a tikkun for the sin of the golden calf. So you have the idea of the floodwaters leaving, and the Mishkan, which was a rectification, which was a fixing for something else, the Mishkan appearing. Same day. So, so, so it says, we want... All right. Let's just understand something so that we can tie this all together. It says in the beginning of Parsha Shmini that um, it uses the word Vayihi. Vayihi is a very uh, potent word. The, um, the Gemara says uh, in Megillah that, that um, when the Torah uses the word Vayihi, it portends something negative is going to happen. Vahaya, um, something good is going to happen. Vayihi, not so much. So, the big question is, in Parsha Shmini, it's talking about the dedication of the Mishkan. And it says that when, which was a microcosm for the entire world. Right? That's another awesome connection. Because what happened when the floodwaters left? The world was renewed. So it makes sense that on that same day that when the floodwaters left, the world was renewed. That's the Mishkan, which is called a microcosm of the entire world. In other words, the world came back into being. Same day. First day of Nisan. Which, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, is Rabbi Nachman's uh, birthday. Not your sight, his birthday, I believe, is, is the first day of Nisan. I meet per- periodically people who are born on the first day of Nisan. I always get excited. You know? Seems like a good day to be born, you know? Anyway, so, um, anyway, that aside, um, why, why on earth, if the Mishkan is a rectification, why on earth would it begin with the word Vayahi? Right? Which sounds negative, according to the Gemara. So I heard in the name of the original Rebbe from Reb Shlomo that it was sad. You know what the sad thing was? Each and every one of us was supposed to be a Mishkan. It wasn't supposed to be a building. It was supposed to be the perfection of self. And instead it was a building. That's a drag. That's a drag. So he uses the word Vayihi. But, this forno brings down that when the world gets all fixed up, all of us are going to become like Mishkans. And that has halakhic implications. Because when you have a base Migdash, when you have a holy temple, you're not allowed to bring private offerings. You see, you have something called... Um, you have a, it's called a Bama Katana, if you will. Which means a mound of earth, which is a small mound of earth, where you could have one outside your home, where it's sort of like, I'm in a fantastic mood today, I'm going to bring a Thanksgiving offering. You know what, I'm not going to go all the way to Jerusalem, I'm just going to make this mound outside my house, and I'm going to offer a sacrifice on this mound. There was a period in Jewish history where that was 100% legal. Then once there was a base of Migdash, no. You have to go to the central place to bring an offering. That's what it is. And if you did it in your own private place, that was like, that was a big no-no, okay? It's going to return that even when there's a third base on Migdash, because all of us will have the status of Mishkans, of tabernacles in and of ourselves, we are going to be able to offer a Bama Katana, a private 
offering in our place, because each one of us will be receptacles and vessels to hold the Shekhinah, God's holy presence. And so we'll be able to be our own Beis HaMikdashes. Okay, it's coming to this place. It's coming to this place. Now, but, again, to get there, and now we're really wrapping it up, I promise, to get there, we have to rectify the world. We have to make every, sure everything flows in its proper way. That's halacha. That's midos. That's the measurements. That's constructing our lives and everything like that. In a way that God's presence, which fills the world, can be revealed in the world. That's our job. Okay? Now listen to this final thought. Maybe you've heard it, but it's very striking. So, it says at this certain year that the heavens opened up and there was a downpouring, right? So the Zohar, I believe it's the Zohar, says, correlates that year with a future date, which is in the 1850s or 1860s, according to our calendar, okay? And that's when the scientific revolution started. I saw an author's, um, oh, Rabbi Schatz, he was saying, he was saying, science is Kabbalah. <laughs> I thought that was an amazing statement. Not sciences can be reconciled with Kabbalah. Science is Kabbalah. And, you know, when I thought about it, I was like, yeah, because if everything is divine wisdom, then it's not like, well, this branch of secular thought can be reconciled. It's not that. If, if, every, if, we're, if we exist within God, knowledge is divine. Science has to be divine. You know, I saw something in the New York Times um, many years ago, which I thought was really interesting. We have a tradition that when a woman is pregnant, that she and whoever else wants to, or she doesn't have to, but one can pray for the sex of the child, meaning the gender, male or female, up until 40 days. That after that, the, 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 the fetus or the embryo, whatever it is, the, the, the gender is determined at that point, and then you can pray, but it, you shouldn't because it's a useless prayer, because the outcome has already been determined. So you have 40, 40 days. So some scientists found a number of years ago that the gender of a child is, 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 um, happens on the 42nd or the 43rd day. Right? And they said, wow, this is something that the Jews knew, like, Thousands of years ago. And they asked a rabbi about this. Like it says, on the 42nd day. And he said, you know, they almost got it. <laughs> right? And it's true. They, they almost got it. They're a couple of days off. So, but, you know, and if you think about it, there has to, you know, 40, and maybe, maybe you'll forgive me and you'll let me go for two more minutes. But, 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 but 40, of course it's got to be 40. It's got to be 40. You know, just the, just the rhythm of that, without giving a whole talk on the number 40. You know, everyone knows that that's a, the mikvah is 40 saw, and, and, and Moshe Rabbeinu was up on Harsinai for 40 days, and 40 is like one of these, these, these harmonious numbers. You know what I mean? And uh, of course the gender would be determined on the 40th. It, it, it has to be. So anyway, that aside. So this downpouring of knowledge is came down as science. But you see, because we weren't lined up, because the world was not lined up, 
it came down and manifested itself as science as opposed to Torah. As science in contrast to Torah. Because we lived in a state, or we live in a state of div- division. This, this schizophrenia where we believe that, no, it's my life. No, well, it's God's world. Well, blah. Science, Torah, ah. God, no God, ah. I don't know. So, so, if we're in a place of harmony, and we're in a place where we have vessels to receive, then everything becomes manifest as the Word of God, and as the will of God, and as the depth of God, and as the revelation of God's infinity. Right? If not, it comes down as an opposing, as an opposing idea. So again, the blessing is that we should align ourselves and, and order ourselves in this to make divine constructs out of ourselves. Because then if we do that, all of the downpouring from above will be revealed as godliness in this world. Okay, have a great week. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah.